0: Welcome to this episode of Mystics and Skeptics. Now here's your host, Sybil.
1: Hello, fellow humans. Hope you and yours are well, wherever you are. Today we have Carl McColman. Carl is a spiritual director, retreat leader, and internationally known speaker and teacher on mystical spirituality and contemplative living. He's the author of many books, including the big book of Christian Mysticism, Eternal Heart, The Mystical Path to a Joyful Life, and Unteachable Lessons, Why Wisdom Can't Be Taught and Why That's Okay. He is one of the co-hosts of the Encountering Silence podcast and blogs regularly on various platforms. Carl also has his own website, anamkara.com. Carl, welcome to Mystics and Skeptics.
0: Oh, it's a delight to be here, Sybil. Thanks.
1: <laughs> so, Carl, I'm a we were chatting before the recording, I mentioned to you that um, this month I'm focusing on the mystical aspects of early the Abrahamic religions. <laughs> and, um, you know, it really, uh, it interests me because, you know, there is a mystical aspect to every religion or belief system, right? And when it comes to Christian mysticism, Bert, and I'm delighted to have you on the show, um, I'm really curious about it and how, how it can be approached in a Christian perspective. You know, I've always understood mysticism to be more about practice and focus on uniting with the divine, you know, a higher mm-hmm. being of, mm-hmm. uh, and versus, you know, uh, dogma being bogged down with dogma and doctrine. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> right? mm-hmm.
1: so that's uh-huh. my uh-huh. definition. If you have a different one, I'd love to hear it, but well, uh,
0: yeah, let me offer a, a, maybe a more non-dual approach that um, that dogma is not necessarily the enemy. Bad dogma is the enemy um that that there is such a thing as good dogma and that, just speaking out of a christian perspective an example of good dogma is love your enemies you know and um it's 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 a good dogma that most christians ignore unfortunately but it is it is a teaching uh, t- you know what what makes somebody a christian well i would define that as somebody who follows jesus now we can spend all day long talking about who jesus is is jesus the son of god is jesus a great teacher was jesus did he die to save our sins you know blah 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 when you Take communion, is it, is it the body and blood, the real presence, you know, all of that. And, and it's all, all of that is missing the point. You know, the point at the end of the day is here's this wisdom teacher that came out of, out of you know, what is modern day Israel about 2000 years ago and had some really revolutionary things to say that 2000 years on, we still haven't really quite put into practice. So, um, so, you know, so, so what is dogma? Dogma is something that a community says, okay, this is what we believe. Again, there can you know, it's kind of like in the Wizard of Oz, are you a good witch or a bad witch? You know Is there good dogma or bad dogma? So So I want to just offer that right out front that there, that there is a place for belief systems. Now here's the thing and here's what, what mystics will do is, is mysticism always takes us back into our bodies. always takes us back into the authority of our own experience. And so what, what, what a mystic will do at least within the Christian tradition, but I would suspect it probably in any tradition, a mystic will never be imprisoned by dogma. Mm. Dogma dogma for a mystic is a stage, not a cage. It is, it is a jumping off point.
1: I mean, doesn't it become, you know, just before we delve deeper on mysticism, you know, when it comes to dogma, I think a lot of the problem is human intervention. You know, when, I, when mm-hmm. we talk about hierarchies, clergy, you know, um, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. they completely imprison, like the word you use or, you know, stifle,
0: yeah. right? Um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even even in, in secular systems, you know, we, we talk about, you know, like, like dogmatic thinking can, can hold people back in psychology or in sociology or in science. So, and again, so what do we mean by dogmatic thinking? We mean where somebody is putting more authority into an abstract principle Right. And into into embodied reality. So so, you know, there's there's a tradition or or a a term you'll hear in Christianity, especially since the Reformation, Semper Reforma, you know, to always be reforming. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that even in the Catholic tradition and the Orthodox tradition, you can see this principle at play. You can see every generation tries to take the teachings of Jesus and to say, okay, how do we how do we embody those? now how do we live those today and the way you know the teachings of jesus are embodied in the year 2022 look different than 1990 or 1960 or 1860 or 1060 and so you know so again where dogma gets us into trouble is that kind of nostalgic dogma we have to go back to the way we used to do it you know um my my tradition is catholicism and there was a there was a major kind of uh kind of a upgrade, if you will, to Catholicism in the 1960s called the Vatican II Council. And it is amazing the number of Catholics who we we need to go back to before Vatican II, Uh you know, And, and whenever somebody says that, I'm always like, well, what about all the Catholics who lived through that and then who made the change? They knew that the old way didn't work. And so, you know, if we're unhappy with the new way, then that means maybe it's time for even a new reformation which is why I think Pope Francis, who I believe is a mystic, Pope Francis is an amazing voice within Christianity today because he's not calling us to go back, he's actually calling us to go forward. And that's, you know, back to what what mysticism is, I would argue that the mystics in every generation, in every century, the mystics are the ones at the vanguard. The ones who, again, dogma or doctrine or teachings, lineage, tradition, whatever word you want to use, is the stage, not the cage. And from that stage, we take it forward. You know, where is the spirit inviting us today? Where is, is, you know, the heart of Jesus inviting us today? And, you know, and then you mentioned, you know, mysticism has to do with, I I can't remember if you use these words, but this is what my tired old brain heard, you know, union with God or the presence of God, the divine presence. And absolutely, you know, but again, you find that in the New Testament, that has been part of the Christian um, kind of wisdom lineage from day one. Now, that doesn't mean a lot of Christians have have missed the memo because a lot have. And that's one of the reasons why Christianity is in the sad shape it's in today. But, um, but the teaching is there. The teaching is, is very explicit. And then of course, we've been blessed with amazing people, with men, women, people of, of every generation who have, who have brought that forward and brought that amazing story of, of what it means to embody the divine, to be present, to be uh, one with the divine into, into each new generation.
1: So you touched upon a lot of things, you know, um, I wanted to ask you about, you know, like the history, it, the roots of Christian mysticism. So if, is it safe to say that even Jesus Christ was a mystic?
0: Well, you know, the, the challenge with Jesus is the challenge you have with any figure who has been kind of embraced as divine is that um I mean even think of our secular heroes like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln how there's folklore you know George Washington and the cherry tree or throwing you know the coin across the river you know we we get folklore that develops around these people that we admire and revere and that is certainly the case within Christianity so even by the times the gospels were written which was i think most scholars believe anywhere from 30 to 100 years after you know Jesus's earthly life already you have kind of this kind of mythologizing going on. That's so true. one of the challenging, you know, one of the challenging questions is how much of the gospel really is an accurate historical record and how much of it is kind of an imaginal record taking us into this kind of imaginal space where, you know, where Jesus walks on the water, for example, you know, and, um, and so, so like the, you know, the story I'm about to talk about it's an interesting question. Was this one of those imaginal stories or did this quote unquote really happen? And I'll just, I'll just leave that question open. But the story goes that Jesus took three of his closest followers, Peter, James, and John, and he took them up a mountain. And when they got to the top of the mountain, uh, and I think it was at night, but it may have been during the day, uh, Jesus was the word, the, the, the Greek word gets translated into English as was transfigured. So this is called the transfiguration. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that at this point is that Jesus begins to glow with a brilliant white light. that, it, and, and, and the way at least one of the gospels describes it, it's like wider than, than, than the whitest of garments. You know, so it's mm-hmm. kind of like just this pure light is emanating out of, out of Christ. And so, um, so then there's an apparition. And the apparition is Moses and Elijah. And I, th- and I think it's so important to remember that Jesus lived and died an observant practicing Jew, something that a lot of Christians seem to forget, but I think is a really important piece of the puzzle. Yeah,
2: it's true. And so,
0: mm-hmm. and so here you have, you have Jesus in kind of conversation with kind of the two, you know, it's funny, I mentioned, you know, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> you know, I kind of like kind of like the two big dogs of, of American civil. I'm a Ben you Franklin
1: know. fan, personally. Uh, and, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, you, know, hey,
0: you know, Hamilton, you know, who thought <laughs> Hamilton would have been a Broadway hero? You know, I mean, it's, it's, but, um, but, you know, but so Moses representing kind of the, um, you know, the, the law, the, the kind of the foundation of the tradition, and then Elijah representing the prophetic tradition. Again, that's the tradition of reform, the tradition of, you know, retelling the story in ways that are new and are relevant. And so then Jesus is kind of having this kind of you know little confab with these guys. And then you have the voice of the divine. This is my beloved, you know, listen. And so, you know, and the, the apostles are just blown away, they're freaked out. Finally, Peter says, you know, I want to build some tents here. I want to build a tabernacle, you know, and then and then the vision passes. Mm-hmm. And they're walking down the mountain, and Jesus is like, hey, don't tell anybody. keep this under under wraps now this is just for you which is interesting and scholars call that the messianic secret but what i would call that is the mystical secret that jesus is saying what you you just had a mystical encounter you just saw me in kind of my full mystical glory and and i'm suggesting that this is something that cannot fully be put into words so don't even try now of course eventually the gospels are written you know that all of that but, but, you know, again, whether you think this is imaginal or you think this is some sort of actual experience, this really speaks to that, that Jesus is, you know, and to use generic language, is a mystical master. You know, it's got, you know, kind of this, this, this full embodiment of divinity. Now, let's fast forward almost 2,000 years to, to the spring of 1958, mm-hmm. to Louisville, Kentucky, <laughs> where... I know, of all places, Louis, and hey, I love Louisville, you know, big, big Muhammad Ali fan, what can I say? But Louisville, Kentucky, the monk, Thomas Merton, who lived at a monastery about an hour south of Louisville is in town on an errand. Monks don't normally kind of drive into town just because they want to catch a movie, but he's, he's in town on a business errand for the monastery. He's walking around downtown. It's a spring day, March of 1958. He gets to a street corner, And he writes about this in his journal the following day, and then in a book about 10 years later. And he says, I come to the street corner and suddenly I fell in love with everybody there. And he begins to talk about this love that again, this embodied love, it wells up out of his heart, out of his body. And it it, it leads him on this journey of theological reflection on the divine presence that is in every heart. But here's the kicker, is that Merton, as he's writing about this, he's saying, how do i tell people and i'm paraphrasing a little but 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 how do i tell people and this is the line he said that we are all walking around shining like the sun and -hmm. so what i when i read that i say merton had a transfiguration moment right there on that street corner in downtown louisville kentucky you know every every city usa (laughs) and um and he, he saw the transfiguration moment. But it di- you didn't need Jesus because that Christ energy was in everybody's heart. He, he, said, he said, if everybody could see what I saw, the big problem would no longer be war. It would no longer be poverty. It would no longer be racism or oppression. He said, the big problem is we would all want to worship each other. Now I don't know about you, but I think that would be a good problem to have,
2: mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And
0: so, so, so this this mystical reality that, and again, what does mystical mean? Well, among other things, it means you ultimately can't put it into words. So everything I am saying here, everything I have written, is, you know, ultimately a failure. Ultimately, does not fully capture the fullness of what, um, what you know what what the body experiences what the heart what the intuition the spirit experiences but this idea that that there is this luminous reality encoded in every one of us in all of our dnas in all of our hearts all of our minds all of our souls all of our bodies that if we could truly see it it would be like we were all shining like the sun and i think what that really means is shining with the presence of the divine and so, so that's what I see, you know, you, you asked me, you know, is Jesus a mystic? Absolutely. And I think the the stories about Jesus the mystic resonate throughout history. And so Merton being just a relatively contemporary example. But of course, there are many others as well.
1: No, beautifully said. Thank you. You know, Carl, you know... Um... We, you mentioned, you know, throughout history, the past, you know, over 2000 years since Christ, you know, they have been Christian mystics, you know, throughout <laughs> history. And many have, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, especially in the Middle Ages, you know, been oppressed, have been brand, were branded as heretics, you know. Burned at the
0: stake. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. What is the yep, fear yep.
1: between, you know, institutional oh. religion and this
0: mystical approach? Well, um, you know, why, why is the Republican Party afraid of transgender people? Um, You know, why is the Democratic, the Democratic Party doesn't know how to relate to, um, you know, to uh, white men who didn't have a college education. There's something about institutions that they create boundaries. And whether you agree or disagree, and I bet every listener, I just annoyed every listener to this podcast, (laughs) because, because, you know, we, we all don't like hearing a criticism about our group, our tribe. You know, and yet the reality is, and I have strong political opinions, but but I think you know both sides have blind spots. Both sides have ways in which they fail to to be present to society as a whole. And it's the same thing I think with religion. You know, you have um so, so you you have the pure mystical experience, the transfiguration of Jesus, Merton on the street corner. St. Paul getting, you know, blown away on the road to Damascus, you know, again, and of course, not just in Christianity, you know, the Buddha under the tree, uh, the night journey of Muhammad, again, and again, and again, you know, you see these amazing moments of kind of transcendent experience, transcendent insight, and then we talk about it, we try to put it into words, we try to tell a story, we try to glean meaning out of it, like Merton writing in his journal, you know, or the, uh, the apostles writing about the transfiguration. And then once we have this story that has been kind of captured in some way or shape or form, that's when the dogma creeps in. Then we start setting up rules and regs, don't we? We we create, we create a policy manual, you know, we, 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 we create an institution and we have a constitution for heaven's sake, you know? And then once you've done that, then you start having insiders and outsiders. And it's just, it's like, it's part of the human condition. And so again, if the mystics represent the people at the cutting edge, which is what I believe they do represent, you know, when you look at the history of Christianity, uh, what you see is that they, there tend to be three responses. They either try to incorporate them and make a sane out of them. Mm. They try to ignore them and hope they'll just go away or they brand them a heretic and say they're dangerous. And, um, you know, and and at its extreme, you know, then they would even try to kill them. And to give you kind of just some some recent examples. okay, Mother Teresa, we're going to make a saint out of her. Thomas Merton, who I just mentioned, the church is trying to ignore Thomas Merton. When the Catholic Church made its catechism, they actually intentionally left Merton out of it. Why? Merton was actually. Why? Because Merton was an interfaith activist. Uh. that's that's, That's 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 that's. no, we don't want to be inclusive, no. <laughs> the last thing we want to do is, you know, get into bed with the Buddhists. So, you know, might, might be good, you know. But um, then what do we do? You know, and, um, you know, and there are other things about Merton. I mean, you know, there, there are ways in which Merton, you know, conservative Catholics are uncomfortable with Merton, which I think is a tragedy, but there you go. And then, um, you know, an example of somebody who is declared a heretic, although he's being rehabilitated, is uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Who, um, who for a while there was on the no-no list from the Vatican. They said, "Do not read this person." Now, what's interesting is that you know, very quietly, the church is kind of changing its view. The last two popes, one of whom was very conservative, Pope Benedict, have both quoted Teilhard in their official documents. So, so we're seeing, you know, the Catholic Church does not like to admit when it's wrong. Boy, it, it took them. Three, almost 400 years to say we were wrong about Galileo, you know, so it's, but I, but I will tell you, this is a quote, Pius XII, there were actually, he was the Pope before John the Twenty Third, so Pope back when, when Teilhard died, there were actually people who approached him and asked him to formally condemn Teilhard.
1: What was tayard's um,
0: story? what what was his tayard was tayard was a, was a scientist. He was a paleontologist. He was a oh, Jesuit. That's which,
1: right. yeah, and
0: all of his and his writings are luminously mystical, but they're all about the integration of science and spirituality, which uh-huh. again, is just you know for 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 somebody who's who's got that boxed dogma, the bad dogma that we were talking about, that's just you know that's just trying to blow the box away, and that's just very terrifying for people. so so there were voices within the church that wanted, Pius XII to formally condemn Tayard. And to his credit, he wouldn't do it. And he is quoted as saying, one Galileo was enough. He <laughs> knew in his heart that Tayard was right and that history would be kind to Teilhard And so, and I think again, you know, Tayard died in 55. So it's what, um, 60, you know, less than 70 years later. And already, you know, we see more and more, you know, uh, Catholics now, conservative Catholics still won't touch him. You know, because that because that's just the box that they live in, but you're more progressively minded, and certainly you're contemplative Catholics. There's a wonderful contemplative Catholic writer right now named Ilya Delio, a Franciscan sister, and she quotes Tarrant all the time. You know, so so there's there's definitely, you know, so so that's the good news. Um, another example is Meister Eckhart, who was formally condemned, and most scholars now think that that it was basically. Uh, you know, there was there was professional jealousy. The bishop was a Franciscan. Eckhart was a, was a Dominican. The Franciscan Dominicans don't always get along, and this mm-hmm. is an example of one. And so and so Eckhart eventually gets gets condemned. Uh, and again, you know, the Catholic Church doesn't like to admit a wrong. So there's never been a formal, oh, we were wrong about Eckhart. <laughs> but at least on the scholarly level, you know most most um, scholars today will tell you, you know, Pretty much everything Meister Eckhart said, 100 or 200 years later, John of the Cross said, and we made him a doctor of the church. You know, so it's just this. You know, it's just this interesting. You know how history is funny. And you've got these radical mystics, uh-huh. some of them become insiders. Like I mean, John of the Cross is quite radical, but then Meister Eckhart also quite radical, who has this pall of suspicion over. Now, the tragic story, of course, is Margarita Peretti, who again was burned at the stake. Mm. Um, you know, and, and of course, part of that was, you know, just gender politics, you know, it, as, as uncomfortable as the church can be with an uppity guy, an uppity gal just <laughs> totally sends them around the bend. And, you know, yeah. and, and the, real, the reality is, is that the, that the way the Catholic Church likes its female mystics is it likes submissive nuns who die young. If you look again and again at the at mystics from the last couple of hundred years, St. Faustina, Saint um, Teresa of Lisieux, Saint Rose of Lima, uh, Saint Kateri Tekakwitha. Most of these women, uh, they tend to they tend to die young. It's like it's like the Catholic Church can only handle mystical women if they don't see them as a threat. Which I know I'm I'm, I'm criticizing my own church here, but that's that's the shadow side of the institution. Would you say I'm sure a lot of, of you- Would you say Joan of Arc was
1: a mystic?
0: Joan of Arc would would would, would be another. Of, don't get me started on Joan. I just love Joan. Now of course Joan, you know Joan gets killed. Yeah, Yeah. so she's another one. But she gets killed for political reasons more than mystical reasons. Mm. But still, it's still she represents this idea of a woman who just is basically a threat. Now Joan of Arc is also transgender. So you have that issue too, oh, you know. She true. she at least she was a crossdresser, you know, but I would argue that I bet I bet she was non-binary. But that's on <laughs> the whole other story for another day. So.
1: how about the other denominations in Christianity? Is oh, there any difference in the like,
0: Protestant, they're, yeah. They're <laughs> just as messed up, but in different oh, ways. No, um, no. The, um the um I don't know about the Orthodox. Let me just say this. I the Orthodox i'm I'm a Westerner, so my knowledge of Christian mysticism is much more on the west. so 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 the Orthodox tradition does have its own beautiful mystical uh, tradition. and and I think that probably there's more of a of a mysticism that that is found in their liturgy. If you ever go to an Orthodox liturgy, that they're usually just transcendently beautiful and of course you know the iconography it's funny my office which you can't see all you can see are the books behind me but my office has about 26 icons in it so if somebody just walked in here they probably think i was orthodox you know but i just i just love love icons so much but um the, the, the problem with orthodox christianity is less about mysticism and more about politics because what you have is you have different churches Associated with different ethnicities or political groups. So you have the Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, the Armenian Orthodox. And and so that has created a kind of inward focus, I think, at least among some Orthodox Christians. Again, I don't want to paint too broad a brush. I I do have friends that are Orthodox. I've got theologians who I admire so deeply. So again, there's a lot of mystical beauty there. In the West, Catholicism, the problem with Catholicism has been the centralization, obviously, the papacy and, and the conservatism that follows in its footsteps. But on the Protestant side, uh, mainly because Protestantism is driven by we're not Catholic. You know, there has been this, this tendency to erase its own, its own mystical kind of heritage. Mm. And, um, you know, what, what you find among, you know, I mentioned Semper Reforma, this other idea, Sola Scriptura, this idea that the Bible is the only legitimate authority. And, um, and what that does is that, that disembodies the authority of the, of the self. And so you know, the individual cannot have any authority. we our only authority can only be derived from scripture. It cannot be derived from a direct relationship with God. And so, um you know so so so, in many ways, Protestantism represents an attempt to erase the mystical. And now, and now, in the Catholic and Orthodox world, what they did was they locked mysticism away. They put it in the cloister, the monastery, mm-hmm. you know whereas in 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 most of the Protestant churches, I think, the Episcopal Church has monasteries, and the um, the Lutherans might. I think there may be some uh, Lutheran monasteries, but beyond that, Protestants don't have monastic tradition. Now, there's neo-monasticism. That's a totally different thing. But but the traditional idea of a community that lived together for the purposes of, of deep contemplation is not part of the Protestant culture. And so so there's this idea that um, you know, and you'll see a lot of Protestants who are opposed to mysticism, especially online. They, they tend to they tend to equate mysticism either with other religions and it's bad because it's not Christian, or they equate it with Catholicism and it's bad because it's Catholic. Now here's what I would say, you know again, God's sense of humor. There are mystics throughout the Protestant world, but they tend not to use that language. They tend to just use maybe more general language about you know, sanctification or experiencing God's indwelling presence, being filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, this kind of language that, again, tends to be drawn out of the Bible. But if you really read between the lines, you see, oh, my goodness, this person is is having something's going on in their heart. That's very, very similar to what you see in a Merton or a Teilhard or, a, you know, a Teresa of Lisieux or whatever. So, you know, the mystical keeps showing up. But but some, you know, sometimes, it, it, you know, it walks like a duck and talks like a duck. But you don't call it a duck because we don't do ducks around here. <laughs>
1: speaking of ducks you know it just occurred to me like for example song right not only in the catholic church and baptists very uh singing you know praising Mm -hmm. you know or uh evangelical christians right they get really you know (laughs) emotionally absolutely i mean do you think that's a form of mysticism
0: oh absolutely yeah of course i think i think charismatic christianity is profoundly mystical but they would never say that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um you know because again there's that 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 kind of that history of erasure that you see um i think the um you know and i come out of the charismatic world i i had a charismatic experience when i was a teenager and um you know and and eventually again you know bad dogma you know and this is what i came to realize is that you know a community again a church an institution a community May have this profound communal experience of the presence of the divine. And, and it's terrifying. It, it, you know, it threatens to annihilate the ego. So it's like, well, what do we do? How do we maintain some semblance of control? I know we'll create dogmas, you know, we'll create <laughs> rules and regulations, and which we try basically try to box God in. Right. And so I think this is why some of the churches that in some ways, you know, and you could say this about Catholicism too, in some ways that are so profoundly mystical and have this amazing container. For helping people to find that embodied, you know, encounter with with the mystery, then they they just try to kind of trammel it with the most restrictive theology, and um, you know, and I think that's just you know, it's it, I guess it's human nature, you know, because we want to be in control, but it, you know, but then what does God have to do? God just has to blow free, you know, which sometimes. <laughs> means some sort of a reform or a new movement or again a a rupture and you have a reformation or whatever so um you know so it's just kind of this dance that we see throughout history uh you know of um you know the the amazing encounter with the mystery the attempt to tell the story the story eventually ossifies into doctrine into dogma which in turn becomes bad dogma which then limits people and then there's some sort of a rupture because somebody else is having this amazing encounter with the mystery that pattern just replicates itself again and again and again
1: and i wanted to ask about your journey and how you found christian mysticism you know an experience when you were a teenager could
0: you well yeah sure i and i've written about it in a couple of my books um so most recently in my book called um unteachable lessons but basically i grew up in a lutheran you know kind of white middle class you know 1960s 1970s suburban privileged you know heteronormative kind of world and um, so you know, so religion was just something you know my parents made me do. I had no real engagement <laughs> with it. And I, I, w- I, went to a youth weekend event, and to be honest with you, I was really kind of more interested in getting stoned and flirting with girls than I was, you know, kind of hanging out. With you. I'm just being honest, you know. are normal. And I was a sixteen-year-old kid in 1977. What can I say, you know? And and I don't know. I guess my heart was just ready. But we a Saturday night we had a communion service. And um, again, you know, it's not so much that I saw light shooting out of my body, but I experienced light. Mm. The room became incandescent, just became filled with a glow. But it wasn't just kind of this interior light. But it was also love. It was just the most amazing, loving, juicy, You know, I I think erotic, but not erotic in the getting laid sense, erotic in the bodily desire sense, Mm. Um, you know, just feeling connected with everybody and wanting to be connected and loving it. And life is just a gift. And I'm so happy to be here. Just this juicy experience. And it probably only lasted a minute or two, but it (laughs) felt like it just went on and on and on. And then finally, the service is over. And I went to some friends of mine and I said, wasn't that just the most amazing thing ever? They were like, yeah, that was nice. Let's go get a Coke. You know, and and that was it was kind of almost a scary moment for me Mm. because it's like, gee, what happened here? What did I I just experience? You know, like I just basically saw the face of God. And they didn't. Wow. And I actually, there was going to be a dance after, and it, was, it, was, it was a room full of hormonal teenagers and what are we, are we going to have a dance? So there's going to be a dance. I went back to my room and I just had to process. And, um, you know, and so I it was shortly after that, that I fell in with the charismatics because they were not afraid to talk about having the experience of God, which Lutherans, Lutherans are very heady. You know, again, very scholarly, very intellectual. There's a lot, of bu- a lot of beautiful things about the Lutheran tradition. But it's not as good about talking about that kind of heart-centered experience. Mm. And, um, and so I, I fell in with the charismatics eventually, though, felt constrained by a very conservative theology. So by the time I was a senior in high school, you know, kind of, I was done with religion, you know, um, but, but it just, you know, it, it wouldn't let go of me. And then I had a dream right after our graduation, had a dream about the world coming to an end. And it kind of spooked me, uh, you know, and I can look back now and it's like, my world was coming to an end. I just graduated from high school. I was getting ready to go to college. You know? Um, we, you know, we talked about Virginia before we started recording. My undergraduate was at James Madison. You know, I grew up in Hampton, Virginia. So James Madison across the state. So, you know, so my world was coming to an end, but the dream was filled with religious imagery. It was like stars falling out of the sky, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So I turned to a friend of mine who actually had been the organist at my church. He had, by this point, he had moved on to other things, but we were buddies. He was about 10 years older than me, but we were friends. And I turned to him and I said, you know, can you help me make sense of this dream? And he listened to the dream and he said, you need to read a book. And he handed me this book and it was mysticism by Evelyn Underhill. Oh, I've heard of her. Yeah. So I read that book. I didn't even finish it. I read maybe about half of it that summer. And it was like, it just opened up a whole new world for me because what Underhill, she was a British woman. She lived from 1875 to 1941, Mm -hmm. you know, so this is 1979. So it's less than 40 years after she passes. But, um, but the book was written in 1911. So the the language is kind of, especially now it's kind of archaic, you know, very stiff upper lip British kind of a thing, but she's basically just saying, look, generation after generation after generation, there are these people, these men and women, these people who, um, who experience the presence of God, experience union with God, who talk about this kind of their their hearts and souls being transformed into the image and likeness of the divine. And I read that and it tracks so much with my experience, you know, and it's kind of like, why did they never teach me this in Sunday school,
2: Mm. you know?
0: And so that really launched my journey to try to kind of just Get to know this stuff. And of course, Underhill would talk about Julian of Norwich, and then I'd go read Julian of Norwich. She'd talk about John of the Cross, or Teresa of Avila, or Meister Eckhart, or John Roisbrecht, you know, or any of those people. You know, now, of course, she's 1911, so she, well, she she doesn't talk about our Thomas Merton or Teilhard de Chardin, you know, or even more contemporary voices like Richard Rohr, Cynthia Bruggeau. Um, you know, I had to discover all those on my own. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, but I just basically, I became a student of Christian mysticism. Then when I was in graduate school at George Mason University, um, I discovered an organization based in Washington called the Shalem Institute. And the Shalem Institute had been founded by an Episcopal priest, Tilden Edwards, who during a sabbatical, this is back in the early 70s, during a sabbatical went to Berkeley, California and spent a couple of weeks studying with a Tibetan Buddhist, uh, Tulku, the Tartang Tulku. And he basically, his brain was fried he, at the end of this, so he had, he was on a two-week retreat. He then cancels the rest of his sabbatical and ends up spending two months studying Tibetan Buddhism. And at the end of it, he goes up to the tulku and he says, I, "I'm going to have to resign my my you know my calling as an Episcopal priest because I want to learn from you." And the tulku <laughs> rejected him. The tulku said, "You are not my student. You are my brother priest. Uh... Your job, your job is to go back there." And to help to reclaim the mystical tradition within Christianity, isn't that a wonderful story? That, that the Buddhist, basically in his own <laughs> act of self-Christian, will you, pl- your your Porsche, its way. Yeah. Could you please help it? So so Tilden did that, and he went back, and he and he connected with Gerald May, who wrote the book Addiction and Grace. Really, you know, Rollo May's younger brother, an amazing kind of uh, neuro neurologist, psychologist. Who, who did a lot of research into kind of like the, you know, the brain and, and contemplation and mysticism and a few other people. And they basically started this organization to teach the contemplative life for Christianity he, he, there in the you know, late 20th century. So I fell in with them and through them, I started taking classes, learned how, what back then we called meditation, now we generally call it centering prayer you know, learned the practice of Centering Prayer, began to work with a spiritual director who's basically a one-on-one kind of guide slash mentor slash companion to, you know, to support a person in their own spiritual unfolding you know, and, and, you know, and then it's just, it just took off from there. And then, and then I eventually, you know, because of reading Merton and Thomas Keating, who's the center and prayer teacher, I, I eventually started to work with Trappist monks. There's a Trappist monastery, just, you know, half an hour from where I live and, um, you know, and learned a lot from them. And my latest real kind of learning center has been with, with Jesuits, the, the church that I'm a member of, the priests are Jesuits. So they have been really teaching me in Jesuit spirituality and Ignatian spirituality. So there's this amazing, amazing tradition that the average rank and file Sunday morning go to church Christian doesn't know about.
2: Right.
0: And, and it's it's tragic because I think much of the problem of Christianity today, whether it's the sexism, the homophobia, the transphobia, the xenophobia, the fear of other religions, um, you know it's the the deal it made with the Republican Party and 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 both parties fail at the message of jesus but 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 too many Christians have made a deal with one of the parties, which I think has been to the has has benefited that party but has hurt Christianity, certainly hurt Christianity's reputation. Uh, you know all of these problems can be traced right back to um, to, to Christianity's abandonment of its own mystical heritage. So, um, you know, it's basically, it's like, it's like it's an engine that has run out of gas, but has not run out of inertia. And so the so the, the engine is barreling along. But as we know, you know, Christianity, institutional Christianity is in free fall, at least in the West. And, and I think it's because it's run out of gas. And the gas, of course, is the metaphor for that meaningful, mystical, you know, Leading of the spirit, that, and we say, "What's the spirit?" You know, and I know some of your listeners are not necessarily, you know, theists, and I respect that. But let's just say the spirit of love, the spirit of compassion, the spirit of care, the spirit of truth. You know, the spirit of of embodiment. The you know, we've traded that spirit. That's what I think the Holy Spirit ultimately represents. We've traded that for dogma, for doctrine, for for um, institutionalism. And this is why so many young people are saying no, thank you, and that, that the institutional side of Christianity is kind of cratering right now. And I can tell you, mystics have been saying this for years. There's a, a wonderful mystic named Karl Rahner who said 50 or 60 years ago, the creation of the future will be a mystic or will not exist. Mm. And, um, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, guess what? We're in Rahner's future, you know. And, and this is what I think we're seeing is that, you know, that young people are just saying, no, thank you. I don't want an institution that its primary focus seems to be to say that queer people are bad and that women have, have no room at the table and that, you know, it's, it's all about the rules and that, you know, we, we've, we've got to basically we've got to enforce a certain political ideology. No, thank you. And I don't blame them, you know. It's, it's just it just makes perfect sense. So at any rate, I know that I'm, I'm digressing here, but- No, um, no.
1: I mean, that's, but, a, that's a very uh, compelling thesis you have. I mean, do you plan on yeah. writing a book about it or-
0: Oh, it, it, it shows up again and again. Um, and others others who are much more articulate than me have done a much better <laughs> job at that. There's a, there's a wonderful book that just came out. And I don't know if Brian would call himself a mystic, but he certainly has kind of, he's kind of mystical around the edges. A man named Brian McLaren, who just wrote this amazing book called do i stay christian and it oh. is written because so many people that are still identify as christian are questioning why am i part of this organization you know and um and so he he actually lays out the case to be part of the christian religion but also not to be part of. It. He, he does i think a wonderful job at and making both cases but then he ends the book by saying look look I spent 25 years as a pastor, but I really don't care. You have to be true to your conscience. Some of you who read this book are gonna leave, and some of you are gonna stay, and that's fine. But whatever choice you make regarding Christianity, the real question is: are you are you truly being human? And I think that's where he gets spiritual, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, I mean, you know, it's I I love the name of your podcast, by the way, Mystics and Skeptics, you know, And, and speaking as somebody who is a practicing Catholic Christian. I am very, very comfortable with skepticism. I think skepticism ought to be a part of. Oh, like absolutely! Life. Yeah. It's- you know, um, the Buddhists have. I think it's Zen. In the Zen tradition, there's this idea that that there are three things necessary for for Zen. Great faith, great doubt, and great perseverance, mm-hmm. and I love that. You know, and I think that that is just as applicable, to, certainly to Christianity, to contemplative Christianity, but probably any religious tradition. Faith—that ability to wonder, to believe, to be open, to say yes to the mystery,
1: and question doubt. everything in the meantime, yeah, to, right? In order to expand yeah. your mind, yeah.
0: To say to say anything is possible. Doubt. To say, but wait a minute! There's no room for bullshit here. Pardon, I, I probably <laughs> had to bleep me out. There, there's no room for bullshit here. That we 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 also have to track with what's true, you know. We yeah. we have to we have to be willing to call a spade a spade. We have to be willing to say no to things that 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 hurt people or that are oppressive or whatever. And then perseverance, you know, let's carry on. You know, the big problems of life, the big questions of existence are not going to be resolved in a weekend. You don't just go to a weekend workshop and be, hey, I'm a mystic now. I've got this certification, you know. Um, it doesn't work that. There's a book that somebody wrote you know, many years ago. I can't tell you the author's name. It's called Have a Mystical Experience in 30 Days. When that book came out, I was so, <laughs> I was so tempted to, to pitch to my editor, I need to write a book called Have a Mystical Experience in 30 Years, Maybe. that's right Because, because because the reality is is that the mystical is not something we can control i mean some people i mean merton had a mystical experience in five minutes but you could also argue he'd been a monk for 17 years when he had that mystical experience. You know, it's just, you know, Paul heading to Damascus to arrest Christians. And boom, <laughs> you know, knocked off his horse, you know. I mean, this kind of thing, you know. It's Jesus, let's go for a walk. You know, so the, you cannot control any of this. And and here's the other thing, is that all of the mystics, almost, almost in unison, will tell you it's not about the experience it's not about the transfiguration or about merton's epiphany on the street corner or or any of that stuff me at me at the church camp the, those things are it's what those things are like it's almost like they're there to catch our attention you know but then the real work of mysticism is love your enemies yeah. That, that's the real work is forgive 70 times 70, which is again, another one of Jesus's teachings that most Christians seem to forget. You know, this, this, you know, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And people think he means you should never sin. But that's not what he's saying. If you read it, he goes on to say, be like the like God who sends the sunlight to both good people and bad people or who sends rain to the righteous and the wicked. Mm-hmm. Jesus is saying perfection is non-duality. Perfection is living in this place of, of, of embodying truth, embodying consciousness, embodying compassion and love and care, and then not worrying about whether people are worthy to receive it or not. To not worry about whether people are insiders or outsiders, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're Catholic or not, whether you're gay or straight or queer or trans or non binary or whatever, Republican or Democrat. Whether you're a Muslim or or a Jew or a Buddhist or a New Ager or you know or a Wiccan, it's like love them all and then let God sort it out. That's the that's what mysticism ultimately is about. It's this big, fat, juicy, wet, highly lubricated love story. So, and you know, and then we miss that. We get caught up in the experience.
1: Right. I mean, just going back to the experience part of it, you, you want to pursue mysticism. I want to pursue spirituality. You, you mentioned contemplative prayer. Is that
0: a right? Yeah. Well, the, the, the lingua franca of, and again, I'm just going to speak in the Christian tradition, and I know you're going to have conversation partners from other traditions, so I'll let them address their tradition. In the Christian tradition, the lingua franca of mysticism is Silence. You go to a monastery, especially a traditional monastery like the Carthusians or the Trappists, and the first thing you notice is it's silent. And and the reason is, a silence is the silence is the habitat; it's the ecosystem for the mystical life. And so, um, so, so we need to enter into silence. Now, the reality is, is you go to a monastery, you go to a cathedral, or out in the desert. I mean, the earliest Christian mystics lived in the desert. Again, you know, seeking that silence. Um, what's the first thing you encounter? You encounter the noise within. You know, so you have external yeah. silence, which most of us don't do very well because we have cell phones and we have, you know, Jim Barton, the Jesuit priest, he calls the cell phone the weapon of mass distraction. <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah, you know, we, we, have, we have noisified our lives to the point that most of us, we don't even know we're missing silence. And then we do get a taste of silence and people get nervous, they get anxious. And so we kind of have to move through that. We kind of have to breathe through that anxiety and just let the silence hold us. And then we encounter our own inner noise. So now what do I do? And it's like learning to find the silence between the inner noise. And that takes a lot of practice. And this is why, you know, meditation teachers, centering prayer teachers, practices like the Jesus prayer, again and again, what the teachers will tell you is do it every day you know, and it's better to do it twice a day, you know. So um, the Centering Prayer, which is the practice that I follow, um, you know, and they borrowed this from Transcendental Meditation, I'll, I'll acknowledge that. You know, the early church, nobody had had watches, so they couldn't give you a time. And nowadays, you know, yeah, 20 minutes, 20 mm-hmm. minutes twice a day, you know. It's like, okay, you know, you can, most of us can handle 20 minutes, but and it's like you need 20 minutes because for the first 18 minutes, your mind is just going, you know. So what the Buddhists call the monkey, you know, you got the monkey going on in your head. What uh, the, a wonderful uh, Christian contemplative writer today, Martin Laird, calls the cocktail party. We have uh-huh. a cocktail party inside us. Uh, one of my students once said, my mind is like a cocktail party with a monkey running around in it. You know, and so, so we've got this noisy internal dialogue, the Howard Cosell, so you have to be my age to know who that is, but you know, the, the sportscaster who's constantly commenting on what's going on. And then, you know, then you, you, you finally find the silence. You enter into the silence and you realize you're in this expansive moment. And then the the cocktail party kicks right in. Oh, we found the silence. Maybe we're going to have a mystical experience now. Do you think we will? Oh, it's going to be great. We're going to be like Jesus. I'm on the <laughs> you're back into the, into the noise. And so it becomes this journey of, um, of moving from silence back into commentary, back into silence, and this is why the tradition. Now, if you, you 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 know if you study Hinduism, you know Hindu forms of spirituality, they'll they'll encourage you to use a mantra, and and you see in the West, in, in Christianity, you see this idea of using the name of Jesus. You know, or think about the rosary, this idea of repetitive praying of the, the Hail Mary or the Our Father. Or in the Orthodox tradition, you have this idea of Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. You know, or scripture verses that you repeat over and over again. What Centering Prayer, which follows a medieval mystical uh, uh, teaching called the Cloud of Unknowing, says just take one word and make that your sacred prayer word. And then when your mind gets distracted, your heart, you, you run off in 20,000 directions, just pull yourself back into the silence with that sacred word. Now it's not exactly the same thing as a mantra, because the idea behind a mantra is you just keep going back to it. But really, in center in prayer, the idea is to, is to just get into the silence and let everything fall away, even the sacred word. And to just rest in what Cynthia Brigeot calls "objectless awareness," to mm. simply be present in that. And, um, you know, and so then, you know, you can ask, well, what about God? What about Jesus, the Holy Spirit? You know, and, and here's what I would say is, is spend the next five or 10 years getting to know objectless awareness. And then we can sit and talk about God. And probably then we can have a meaningful conversation because we're not, we're not going to be talking about abstract ideas anymore. We're going to be talking about lived experience. You know, Meister Eckhart said, the eye with which I see God is the eye with which God sees me. Mm. Really stop and think about that. The eye with which I see God is the eye with which God sees me. So so one eye, he, he goes and he says, one eye, one knowing, one love. Or I can't remember exactly the words, but it's in one of his sermons. That is is perhaps the best summation of Christian mystical theology that I have ever read. If you want to boil Christian mystical theology down to one sentence, that's it. You know, that, it's non-dual. It's the presence of the divine. It's union with the divine. It's fully embodied, you know, and it's um, and it's just this recognition that, you know, that there's no difference between me looking at God and God looking at me. They're the same thing. It's the same gesture. And I can, you know, talk to you about this and, 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 and somebody listening will say, well, that just sounds like mental, you know, auto eroticism. And I'm like, but if you spend time in silence, it will make sense to you. You will understand. So, so
1: I mean, it seems like a very direct approach, you know, and some not, you know, it. it... Sometimes roots to spirituality or roots to the divine sometimes requires an intermediary from belief systems. So, you mean
0: you mean like a like a guru like Shaktipat or exactly, something? Exactly. What, yeah. what 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 Christianity would say is that, that you receive your Shaktipat directly from the Holy Spirit. Mm. The New Testament explicitly says Romans 5, 5, look it up, says the love of God is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Yeah. Full stop. The love of, you know, when people start talking, you know, like like this Calvinist, okay, I've been picking on the Catholic Church all along, <laughs> this Calvinist BS about total depravity, total depravity. And, and I mean, you know, and hey, some of my best friends are Presbyterian, you know, I, I, I love, you know, I love the Presbyterian Church, especially the PCUSA. So, so I'm not just trying to throw stones here, but total depravity is a mistake. That's not real. Again, that's the skeptic part of your podcast, mate. And we need to be skeptical of teachings like that because they don't, they don't bring us to the heart of God. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what you know, if Calvin were here and he was like, total depravity, I'd be like, what part of the love of God has been poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us? don't you understand? Now you can I, I will agree with you that, that I do bad things. That, that people make mistakes. I mean, look at, look at what just happened in Texas. There are awful things that happen in the world. People hurt one. That's what we call sin. Okay, that's a reality. But don't tell me we're depraved. Tell me we're good people created in the image and likeness of God who unfortunately from some inexplicable mystery sometimes do bad things. That's the truth. And so we've got to start with our basic goodness because it's out of that goodness, that divine indwelling, that mm-hmm. spirit poured into our hearts. That we can then address the harm we do to ourselves and to one another. But if we walk around believing we're just depraved, why bother? Right. It's very
2: defeatist. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, so so if the spirit is in my heart, then the spirit becomes my, you know, my guru. My yeah. intermediate, you know, you you mentioned that I I have a ministry. I talk about spiritual direction. Well, now, you know, fast forward 40 years later. Now I am a spiritual director and I, I accompany other people and I will tell people when they want to work with me, I'll say, listen, the Holy Spirit is your spiritual director. I'm more properly your companion. Mm. And my job is to support you as you listen to the leading of the spirit in your heart. That's right. That. That's that's, you know, and if there's anything like a Christian Shakti pot, that would be the equivalent is, you know, another person who basically says to you, look here, because this is where it is. This is where the mystery is. And you, and you can find it. it back to Merton. How can we tell people that everyone is shining like the sun? He says he says there is no program for this, but the gate of heaven is everywhere. Isn't that beautiful? Julian of Norwich, the great medieval mystic, said the fullness of joy is to behold God in all. Mm -hmm. Uh, St. Benedict, we believe the divine presence is everywhere. I mean, again and again and again, the mystics are saying to us, you can't miss it, folks, because it's right in front of your nose. It's in your heart. It's all around you. It's everywhere. The point, you know, it's like we cannot make God be present. We need to learn how to remove the blinders so we can see what's already there. That's, that's, that's what the mystical journey is all about. It's like discovering that we are in a world that is luminous with wonder and joy and love. And yes, bad things happen. I don't want to in any way, try to pretend that's not true. It absolutely is true. And, and, you know, the reason why I'm, I teach mystical theology is that I believe that people who are empowered with their own mystical grandeur are people who are better equipped face the injustices and the evils and the oppressions and the the abuses that that and their, inner, demons. Okay. And their inner yeah child, and, right? and their yeah. inner demons yeah you absolutely have got to have got to encounter that own shadow within yourself if if there's any hope i mean why why do you know like this this young man in texas who went and killed all those children why did he do that i well, none of us know and he's dead now we'll never find out but i'm willing to bet yeah he he it was he was acting out of his own inner pain he was failed by you know his family and his school and everybody our society and and we you know all of these people who turn to violence we're failing them because we're not we're not giving them ways to 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 be able to deal with that own that own inner struggle and you know and then what do we do now we just write them off oh he's mentally ill you know and then and then we don't address the fact that there's some other very unhappy painful suffering person out there who has access to to assault rifles and could be the next one mm-hmm. you know i mean we're in the middle of a, of a full-throated crisis right here and and you know and and one of the things we've got to do is we've really got to start addressing the fact that we do not know how to help people to transform their own inner suffering and we've got to figure out quickly because we're because we're arming them that's what we are doing it sure has Created this kind of every person for themselves.
2: Mm,
1: that's true, right? Kind of
0: con, kind of yeah. consumer-driven thing that, that I think is is ultimately unhelpful. And then while we've we've taken a lot of wonderful steps forward, you know that f- for example, I mean as you can probably tell, you know I certainly have a heart for people, you know who have been who've been marginalized, whether it's people of color, whether it's queer people, I mean women in general. Um, you know, we, we are trying, trying to address some of those issues, you know, dismantle the systems of privilege and oppression. Of course, a lot of people are fighting that tooth and nail. But, but in the meantime, I think, and I think it's our economic system is really, you know, just creating this, this every person for themselves culture that, you know, that just, you know, I mean, people resent the idea, you know, to, to, to give a case in point, you know, kind of, kind of the, you know, the, the, the whole vaccine mandate. And it's like you know, don't tell me what to do, you know, don't tell me the, you know that I have to do this or the masks. a mask maybe even is better, you know. It's like you wear you don't wear the mask for yourself, yet. You, you wear the mask for the other person. Mm-hmm. But it's like we have law, you know. I think about my father, who was a World War II vet, you know. They, I mean, during World War I and World War II, people were lining up to volunteer.
1: Oh, the good old days. You know? oh, yeah. and, and
0: listen, I'm a pacifist, okay? So, so I'm not exactly a fan of, 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 you know, of the draft, but I, but I am a fan of a culture which teaches us that our dignity and our nobility is the extent to which we can help the larger community. Mm. We, that's the message we have lost in our culture. And I, and I blame our economic system. That 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 we have an economic system that is r- hyper individualistic, and um, you know, and, and because of that, you know, we just you know everything is about you know don't you know don't tread on me, don't you dare abridge my rights. If that had been America's value during World War II, Hitler would have run across Europe. The, you know so many of the institutional religions, you know, the churches especially, you know, Christianity has gotten in bed with that way of thinking and yeah. so it's you know it, you know and i think you know i think there's this unfortunate dynamic that you know marx saw religion as as an embodiment of capitalism and so of course marx promoted that socialism ie and then communism ought to be atheistic so then you have kind of this top down atheism you know there's two kinds of atheism in the world an atheism that's a matter of a person's personal conscience I 100% respect. In fact, what I would say to your, you know, to, to any atheist who's listening to this or any of your atheist guests, I would say, tell me about the god you don't believe in, because I bet I don't believe in that god either. Mm. So, so I, I have respect for that. But what I don't have respect for is top-down atheism, and that's the atheism of of communism, you know, or or of of Mexico in the early 20th century, you know, you know the atheism that tries to to outlaw religion. You know that is just. I mean, what that does is that breeds fundamentalism, mm-hmm. and so it's it's you know that's that's the you know and and so unfortunately Christianity you you find a lot of Christian literature from the like 1920s and 1930s and it's rapidly anti-communist. Well, what they're reacting against is the is the kind of the, the top-down atheism in the communist countries, but then they're not stopping to consider. But wait a minute, you know, is is there something to be said for for an alternative to the unbridled capitalism that we have just unleashed in our country that has basically led us to, to the hyper-individualism. And I'm not an economist, so, you know, so the ca- capitalism versus socialism debate is kind of above my pay grade. But, um, but I think you know, maybe you know, as long as we have that binary, one is absolutely good and one is absolutely evil, then we're trammeled. And, and and we're not we're not moving the conversation forward about what is really for the common good. You know, and that's what I think is lost in our society today. And, and you see this with with the whole Republican versus Democrat. thing. Nobody's talking about the common good. We're all talking about my side is right and the mm-hmm. other side is out of it. And we're so busy trying to erase the other side and right. sides are guilty. And, <laughs> and listen, I have I have strong opinions and, and I, you know, I, I tend to vote a certain way. So don't get me wrong. You know, I you know. Um, but but I think that that the common good has got to be the common good, and there's got to be some way in which we can we can interact and relate to one another and not immediately demon. But then you know you take issues such as you know such as transgender kids in sports, or you know or or the question of you know reproductive, you know the woman's control over her body versus the the anxiety that people feel about you know the rights of the unborn. I mean these are deep, difficult, challenging issues that involve. Radically different worldviews.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We're not going to solve them in a weekend or a month or even in 20 years. What? How long has it been since Roe v. Wade? 50 years. Um, you know, and and you know, and if Roe v. Wade gets overturned this summer, it's not like it's going to go away. It just goes back to the states, and which I think a lot of a lot of conservative Christians haven't really thought that through. Kind of had this idea we will, you know, we will get in bed with the Republican Party and they're going to get rid of Roe v. Wade, and then it's going to be like it used to be. Uh. Uh-uh. I, I, you know, and so, so it's just, at any rate, I, I know this isn't a political point. Let's talk it, about God. God is
1: more Oh yes, yeah, God help us all. <laughs>
0: God bless
1: America. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so Carl, so um, all of
0: you, all of you that I've offended, I love you anyways, you know, let's just, let's all just try to be true to our conscience and try to treat each other with love and respect. So, well, I tell you, you what,
1: I'm going to uh, uh, register for a spiritual silent retreat after this podcast.
0: Because <laughs> wanna... at least then you don't have to talk about politics.
1: Exactly. To, 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 to just to, to contemplate so. my existence. Okay. Um, so Carl, if listeners want to um pursue Christian mysticism or want to... um get a hold of your books or um, your website, how can they do that?
0: So I am, um, yes, I'm online. I, you can find me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, you know, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. But my website, I'm going to spell it because it's an Irish word. It's anamchara.com and that's A-N-A-M-C-H-A-R-A.com. Uh, you, as you know, I also co-host a podcast called Encountering Silence, um, a lot of the, the the episodes do involve uh spirituality. Not all do. We look at silence from many different perspectives. So we do get political on that that podcast more than I do on my blog. But um but the um so Anamkara is an Irish word that means soul friend. And it, it's back to that kind of ministry of spiritual companionship or spiritual direction. So it's so a whole nother area that I'm I'm fascinated by is the Celtic tradition of Christianity, but we'll save that for mm. a different day. So
1: Great, and your books can be found on that website, and I—you
0: I, can okay. buy them directly from me if you want an autograph copy. Uh, they are a little bit cheaper on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, you know, or uh, you know, there's what IndieBound. There's some wonderful independent bookstores where you can order them as well. Um, you know, most of them are available in some form of of um, you know, ebook or Kindle or Nook version as well. So all of those are available online. Yep. Thank you. Yep. It
1: was a pure delight that, uh, speaking with you, Carl. Oh. Everyone, thank was- you. Thanks. Everyone. That was Carl McColeman. And for our listeners, thank you for listening to Mystics and Skeptics. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and stay in peace, everyone.